endure. We talked about how endurance is developed. My little clicky thing's not working, Jesse. There we go. So I gave you the picture there of these ladies that are running in the Olympic Games. And one of the things we learn about people that run is they have need of endurance. And that's obvious to us, right? Because most of us, and I won't include you guys, but I'll include myself, if I start running and I haven't been practicing, it doesn't take very long where it seems like or looks like I've been a chain smoker my whole life. I start running and I'm wheezing and I'm coughing and I get just a little bit down the road and I'm like wanting to throw up because I don't have any endurance. And so the question becomes, if endurance is needed, how do I get endurance as a believer? I know how to get it as a runner. I need to practice. And so Don Barzowski gets those people out there and they start running. And he says, run every day and run till you can't take it anymore. Run farther than the actual race, because if you run farther on race day, when you run the race, it's no biggie. It's, it's a cakewalk. Now, I know that it's not actually a cakewalk, but it's easier than if you don't have any practice under your belt at all. You, you've stretched your lungs and your, your muscles are used to doing what they do. And so there's endurance built into the race itself. So he says in Hebrews chapter 1, or excuse me, 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. So we talked about how we need to first look at all those who have gone before us and raced this race of faith, and it's, it's lined out in chapter 11. Old Testament saints are there so that we can look at their lives and go, you know what, they trusted God and God was faithful to them, so I can trust Him now because He hasn't changed. And so we see God's faithfulness play out in their lives. And number two, if we want to have endurance, we got to lay aside the weight. And we talked about last time how weight isn't necessarily sin. Many people who go running, they actually put weights around their ankles to practice. And then when they run, the race itself, we take the weights off. Except as Christians, sometimes God gives us things in our lives that are weights meant to train us. And then we never take the things off and we try to run on race day and it just doesn't happen. We try to run that race and compete with other people that aren't wearing weights. Next thing you know, we're, we're heaving because we can't, we can't keep up with them. And so those things that God places in your life for training periods, you've got to let go of them at some point. Take off the training wheels, if you will. And then number three, we need to lay aside sin. Now this should be obvious, right? I mean, Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven of them. But there are a group of people that take that as license to sin rather than freeing from sin. God's freed us from our sins, not so that we can go back to them, but so that we can be set free from them and no longer have to be enslaved to them. And so we as believers been giving the Holy, have been given the Holy Spirit, so now we don't have to just go with the flow. We actually have God's Christ's spirit within us, and we are now able to say, no, I won't do that. I won't go that place. I won't say that thing. We can't blame people around us. Well, my friends were all doing it, so I had to. Now we're at a spot where we can say, hey, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, so no. <laughs> and we can have that power to do that. And it takes power. It's way easier to go downstream. 
I heard one preacher one time describe um, the, the way that leads to destru- destruction is wide, right? That's what Jesus said. And he described it as a slip and slide. You get on a slip and slide and you start heading down a hill, there ain't no stopping it. So why even play around at the top of it, right? And so to lay aside sin, and that means to forsake it, to repent of it. I just did a wedding last week for Jesse and Vika. And part of the vows is forsaking all others. An exclusive vow to dedicate your life to this person that has now joined and knit to you. And that's a picture of Christ in the church. So when we say, I repent of my sins, I want to follow you, Jesus, it's a wedding. Forsaking all others. Forsaking my own personal fleshly desires. Forsaking pleasure. Instead, living for Christ and and saying no to the flesh. And so um, we forsake our sin and we repent, meaning we turn around 180 and go the opposite direction. And then number four, to look to, to trust in Jesus. So one of the ways that we can endure, if endurance is needed, is we look to our Savior. And I love this because he continues on there in verse three. He says, for consider him, meaning Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. He, he didn't have a whole, he didn't have a big fan club that was taking him around everywhere. Actually, when he really got down to the nitty gritty many times, even the people that said, we'll follow you anywhere. They said, wait a minute, <laughs> that's a little too hard, the thing you just said to me. You know, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you're like, wait a minute, uh, this seems like a problem. This seems like, you know, but what he was saying is, unless you partake of me, unless you take me into yourself, then you can have no part of my kingdom. And he even said that to Peter. Peter was sitting there with the rest of the disciples and Jesus uh, took off his outer garment and he took a towel and wrapped it around his waist to serve his disciples as the lowest slave would in a house in John chapter 13, I think. And as he got ready to wash the disciples' feet, Peter looked at him and he said, "Uh, you're not going to wash my feet. (laughs) You're Jesus. He said, well, if, if you don't let me wash you, then you can have no part in me. And so uh, Peter then stops and he goes, oh, well then uh, wash my whole body. He goes, no, you only need to have your feet washed. And so unless we're cleansed by Christ, we, we can't have him. And, and so we need to look to Jesus. And he says, um, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed against striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. So we not only need endurance to finish the race, but we also have need of endurance so that we can endure his chastening. We live in a day and age where if you chasten someone, if you correct them, their first response is, I don't want any part of you anymore. You know, we just do. People don't receive correction. But the reality is that in a relationship with Jesus, if you won't receive correction from him, you're not his. He's not just meant to be savior, but also Lord, master. And so with that in mind, he continues on. He says, if you endure chastening, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you are not sons. So if you don't receive correction or 
if you haven't received correction from the Lord, the reality is you're probably not His because He loves His and He corrects them. So, but go down to verse 11 where He says, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it seems to be painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we're talking about training in godliness. So if you receive correction, if you are allowing your, you humble yourself and you let God train you through his correction, the reality is it will produce fruit in your life. That we're looking past the, the training, we're looking to the fruit of the training. And in this case, it's not that I can run and beat everybody. It's that my life will actually produce fruit, peaceable fruit, of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So those who are trained by it will produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness that's right living before God and man. And if you've heard the the Ten Commandments and you look at them, you see that a a section of the Ten Commandments are between me and God. They're, They're vertical. But then once my relationship is right with God, the rest of them all have to do with horizontal relationships with other human beings. And so... If you say you have a relationship with God and yet your relationship with human beings is always severed and broken, I would submit to you that maybe this uh, vertical relationship is not where it should be. And so, um, but God trains us through discipline and therefore, he says in verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Now, what I talked about last time is how Jesus being the good shepherd in Psalm chapter 23, or yeah, Psalm, Psalm 23, he said this. He said, uh, uh, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And, and so the rod was used for basically correction or beating off the wolves, anything that would threaten the sheep, but the the staff, I can't remember which one, I'm probably messing it up, but the rod and the staff were two different instruments. One was meant to pull the wayward sheep back in, and one was meant to beat off the wolves, but the reality is that many times the sheep would still wander, and so you would have to correct the sheep. And a loving shepherd many times would take his sheep that was always bent on leaving the flock, going to unsafe places, and he would dislocate one of the members, one of the things that the sheep would use to walk, one of his legs, for correction because he loved them. Now, I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> the thought of dislocating a member of something that, that I love is, is very difficult, and yet God many times will dislocate our members because he loves us. He wants us to be fully dependent upon him. And so the good shepherd, you've seen the picture of Jesus with a sheep over his shoulders. Once he relocates that that joint he puts it back in the the sheep can't walk right away there's brokenness there's hurt there's pain and so in the meantime he would train that sheep to stay close to him by throwing the sheep over his shoulders and carrying it everywhere and when he carries it everywhere the sheep gets used to its scent the sheep gets used and sees the fact that the shepherd loves him and lovingly correcting it it learns to stay close to the shepherd. And so God trains us through correction. He says, but, so as I was reading this this week, it 
brought into mind a new thought because we're not sheep. We, Jesus calls us sheep. We are sheep. We're the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd. But the reality is, is that um, he says, strengthen parts of the body there. He says, um, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Now, what is he talking about? Is he talking about us working out? Is he talking about, you know, I, I, so as I was looking at that, I said, what are the parts of the body? And the reality is each member of the body of Christ is not one of us is the whole thing. In other parts, Paul talks about the body of Christ and he, he says that some of us are a toe and some of us are an ear, some of us are a mouth. And so if we're to strengthen each part of the body, I would submit to you, he's referring to what Paul writes to in, in ch- chapter 4, verse 11 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says that he himself, meaning Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The word edify there means to strengthen or to build up. So if there are weak hands, if there are weak members, he's saying that our job is to strengthen one another. We have need of endurance. We have need of strengthening. So if that's the case, who's supposed to strengthen us? And I would submit to you that we're all supposed to strengthen each other. We all have weaknesses. We all have strengths. But when you bring all those weaknesses and strengths together, what you find out is that we all make up for each other's lack. And so he says there in uh, verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest any one of you fall short of the grace of God. So he says, pursue peace with all people. So the goal of Hebrews chapter 12, this need of endurance and this need of strengthening, the goal is found in verse 11 of chapter 12, that peaceable fruit of righteousness, which looks like peace with all people and holiness before the Lord. And and he produces this as we submit ourselves to him. So peace with all people. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. There in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking says this. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I would submit to you that peacemakers who make peace are called that not only by each other, but they're called that by the world. The world's always calling out for peace and says that peace is on the fore, you know, like just right around the corner. We're going to develop peace. But I would submit to you that the only people that truly are able to create any sense of peace are the ones that have experienced it from God himself. And then in James chapter 3, just a couple chapters over, in verse 16, it says this, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so who's supposed to be the peacemakers? The, one, the ones who are related to the king of peace. 
the ones who have experienced the peacemaker. And so um, then he says, as he says, peace with all people is a goal and holiness before the Lord. He says holiness should be in our lives because if there isn't holiness, then no one will see God. They'll only see you and I. What is holiness? Holiness is being set apart for God's use. Holiness is wholeness. When we come to the full measure and the stature, we are conformed into the image of Christ. Can we do that on our own? No. We can't make ourselves holy. Only Christ can. And in Colossians chapter 1, lest you think that maybe holiness is something that is a little bit high of a bar for us, Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 actually says this, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He actually reconciled us to the Father through his death. He paid the punishment for our sins. The wages of sin is death, and so he took that for us. But he did it all so that we would be able to be presented to you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That if anybody were to say something against us, they were to charge us with wrongdoing, that the charges wouldn't stick because it wouldn't match up with what we actually have lived out. And so peace with people and holiness before the Lord. So as we move forward, he says we need to be strengthened. And in order to be strengthened, he gives us three things. He says, I want you to look back to an Old Testament example. I want you to look up to the heavenly kingdom that is actually our home. And I want you to look ahead to the new Jerusalem. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, he, he gives us three things. If we need to be strengthened, we need to look three different places. Verse 18. Well, first of all, he's going to say, look back to Esau, who fell short of the grace of God. So in Genesis chapter 25, we have the story of Jacob and Esau. And we kind of come in in the middle of it because Esau is a picture of the flesh in the Old Testament. Genesis 25, verse 27. So after Jacob and Esau, twins, were born, it says in verse 27, the boys grew, and Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? So Jacob said, swear to me of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
He gave it up for a pot of stew. The temporary versus the long term. And we do that, right? What does my birthright mean to me if I'm going to die? Now, was Esau going to die? No, he wasn't going to die. But his appetite to feed his flesh to him was more important than the long term. And so he sells his birthright. But if you go forward just a couple of chapters to chapter 27, verse 30, we get a little bit more of the story. It says, Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. So what we know about this story, and if you don't know it, read in between chapter 25 and 27, is that Jacob and Esau were kind of at odds with one another. And Jacob was the younger. He was born second. And he wouldn't naturally get the birthright. He wouldn't get the stuff. And so he wanted the blessing of his father. And his mom actually conspires with him against his uh, dad. His dad lost his eyesight. And so what Jacob says is, hey, or excuse me, Isaac says is, hey, Esau, why don't you go out and make me the food I like to eat? Go kill me an animal. Make me some stew, and after I eat this stew, I'll give you my blessing as your dad, because he's kind of on his deathbed. And so as he does this, Esau goes out to go hunting, and he's going to create this stew. Well, his mom hears what's going on, and his mom plays favorites and says, hey, I want my son Jacob to have it because I like him better. And so she goes out, she kills an animal, she cooks up the stew that she knows that her husband likes, and she actually tells Jacob to deceive his father and covers him, because his brother's hairy, covers him in animal skins so that when he goes to talk to his dad and says, here, dad, I brought you this food, he's able to say, well, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the smell of the, the beast of the field and this hairiness, is the, it, it's got to be you, Esau. And so he blesses Jacob, not realizing that's what he's done. And in the meantime, Jacob leaves, and then his brother comes in and goes, hey, I made this stew for you. He goes, wait a minute, who are you? He says, I'm Esau, your son. He goes, then who was the guy I just blessed? So the reality is Esau had already sold his blessing. He'd already given it up, but he was still going to try and get it. And so uh, we have this picture of Esau. And what Hebrews chapter 12 says about Esau in verse um, 14 through 17. um, Let's see here. Verse 15 says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled lest there be any, look at this, fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He still wanted his dad's bur- his blessing, but he had, hadn't done anything the correct way. And so, Esau is described in Hebrews 12 as profane. But as I was looking at this, I have to tell you that um, he was likable. He was congenial. I had to look up that word. That means likable because of his hobbies, 
and because of his countenance. He was a good old boy. That's why I got the picture of uh, the good old boys in the background. Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm, you know. And, and think about even the guy that wrote that song, wasn't it Waylon Jennings? I saw him in concert one time. They had to carry him out. He was so drunk. He was not a good old boy in the eyes of the Lord. But look at this. That, so that's who we would think of as someone that's profane. The word profane actually means to be common, or the Hebrew word means to be outside the temple. That means unholy. And that means not belonging to God. That's what it means to be holy. We belong to God. We're different. But I want to submit to you, look at this. He was profane, and what the description of a profane person here is likable, a good hunter, and he loved his dad. Now, how many of us would give that kid a pass? He's a good kid. The Bible says he's profane. The Bible says he's sexually immoral. The Bible says that he has no care for spiritual things, and he lived for the world while ignoring God, and everyone would give him the pass. They'd look at his life and go, he's all right. He's not as bad as I was when I was a kid, as if that's an admirable goal. If my son is not as bad as I was when I was a kid, he's still in pretty bad shape. That's pretty bad. So I say all that to say, I, I think we need to tear up our idea of the word good and start fresh. Because the Bible is very clear in this passage about Esau that he was profane. He might have had it going on the, on the outside, but on the inside, he was just as bad off as somebody that's going out shooting up a motley crew. He was just as bad. And so he gave up his birthright and missed out on the blessing. So the question becomes, how many of us are led by our fleshly desires, are led by um, our appetites, and because of that, we forsake what God has for us, which is the best. So he says, look back to the Old Testament bad example of Esau. He sold his birthright. He sold what made him really matter for, a food, for dinner. You know, and I would submit to you that many Christians sell what God has done for them for something that temporally isn't even that enjoyable soup and lentils. He probably even had indigestion afterwards. It's a lot of fiber in lentils, right? And so um, then he says to look. Now, I realize there's a lot of words on here, and I'm sorry. And I realize the background makes it really hard to read. Uh, but I, I have this picture. I was going through my pictures from Israel in 2017. And this is uh, close to the Western Wall, but there's all kinds of rocks that are torn up and laying there. And those rocks are still laying there from 70 A.D. They're still laying there. So he says, look up to our heavenly city. Uh, just like Abraham, just like Sarah, just like Isaac and Jacob did. Look at chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. It says there, these all died in faith. Talking about those four individuals. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to go back. But now 
They desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city. And that is our home. I would submit to you that that is our home. This heavenly city is our destination. So he says, number one, where not to look. Well, in in verse 18, in chapter 12, he says, um, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, to black and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And when he's speaking of this, he says in verse, they, uh, excuse me, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. So he's hearkening these Hebrew Christians back to the day that they all identify where God gave them. If you want to live righteous before God, Here's where the righteous standard was set. And it was at Mount Sinai where the giving of the law happened. But he hearkens back to this story, and I gave you the references. Um, and if you want to write them down and read them later, I won't speak about them today. But it was terror. It was trembling. It was death. It was everything that God's presence is without the covering of Jesus. The law was not a picture of grace. The law was a picture of God's holy standard. And without Jesus, the holy standard is not only not attainable, but it's also incredibly scary. When they were there and the giving of the law was happening, there was lightning, there was thunderings, the top of that mountain was concealed in a cloud. Think about the worst thunderstorm you've ever seen. They're all standing out there. You know, you think about people say, don't stand in the middle of a field during a lightning storm. Well, they were in the desert. There was nowhere to hide. And what God told them there was make a boundary around this mountain because if anyone approaches and touches the mountain, they need to be killed because God is holy. We need to be set apart from him because without any protection, you and I in the presence of God would mean death. Death. Even in the temple of God, If someone came in, hadn't made the proper sacrifices, being in the presence of God would kill them. So it's a very important thing to think about. That God is approachable at all through Jesus should completely blow us away. That with Jesus in between us, there's this covering that makes us okay to be in his presence because of all that Jesus has done. So he says, we're not to look. And I put there for you salvation on your own merit, being able to do the law, being able to be right in God's sight by fulfilling his standard. We can't look there. It won't get us where we think it will. But where to look is found in verse 22 through 24. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, And look who's there, an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. That's us, by the way. We are the church of the firstborn. He was the firstborn in the resurrection, and we follow in his likeness. We're saved by his grace. He says, to God, the judge of all, God, the judge of all, 
will be in this heavenly city. But then he says, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Those are the Old Testament saints. They were justified by faith is what it's written of them. And then to Jesus, look at this. God, the judge of all, and yet he lists separately Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we're not approaching God based on our works. We're approaching God in this new heavenly city where the giving of grace happens. At the day of the giving of the law, 3,000 were killed because when Moses came down off of the mountain and he had the law and he walked down and there was this big festival and craziness going on. And if you remember with me, Moses got mad and he took the Ten Commandments and he threw them to the ground and they broke. Physically and spiritually, they'd already broken them before he even came off the mountain. But at the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, how many people were saved at the preaching of Peter? 3,000. So the giving of the law brought death, condemnation. The giving of grace and the Holy Spirit empowering believers to follow by faith, there was 3,000 that were given life. And so we've approached God based on what Jesus has done. And he says there at the very end, something that seems almost trivial, he says, and we've come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Well, if you've read Genesis, in the very beginning there, where Cain famously kills Abel, what it says about Abel's blood is that when it spilled on the ground, that his blood cried out for justice. That his blood, soaking into the dirt, still cries out for justice, for things to be made right. Because Cain killed Abel unjustly. He was not justified in taking his life. And yet what we know about the blood of Christ is that though he was unjustly killed, that his blood sprinkled means life for us. It no longer cries out for justice, but now it provides justice for you and I. We are justified by faith. Justified is just a fancy word that means made just as if we never sinned. So his blood provided, made atonement between us and God. And so, to be strengthened, we need to look back to Esau to, to realize that, that <laughs> forsaking what we've been given is not a wise choice. But then we need to look up to this heavenly city, this heavenly Zion, where all of our salvation is provided in Jesus. And yet we are in the presence of the judge with Jesus mediating between us and the judge, he's the best defense attorney ever. He, he makes it happen. He has a right standing. He says, don't look at him like you look at them. They're trusting in me. Look at me. And he looks down on us and he sees Jesus and all that he's done. But then he says, to be strengthened, look to the unshakable kingdom. The only way to, to arrive in this heavenly city is to hear his voice, and to follow after it. He says there, he says there in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Don't refuse the voice of him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape 
if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken will remain. So he, he speaks about this shaking that's going to happen. I think too many of us, and I, I say people in this, but I would say even Christians, are building their lives around things that can be shaken and taken from us. Whether it's our job, or our relationships, or our friends, or anything that you can put your trust in that's not necessarily guaranteed. Jesus said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things would be provided for us. But he didn't even say shelter. He said, what do we need, really? He said, food and clothing. We need a covering to keep us from being taken out by the, the weather, but we also need food to sustain our life. So God is shaking things, and he will. I don't know about you guys, but many times I go through times where I feel like everything in my life is being shaken. And it seems as I get older, uh, so much more gets shaken. And the question becomes, in those moments where the things I trust in get shaken, do I start to doubt God's faithfulness? The reality is, these Hebrew Christians, at the time of their faith in Christ, they were looking, and the temple that they used to go worship in still existed and was not crumbly like the picture in the background. It was standing there, sacrifices were still being made, everything was going on business as usual. But in 70 AD, the writer to the Hebrew Christians is writing to them before the temple gets destroyed by the Romans. God, inspiring this writer, is telling them all things can be shaken except our foundation in Christ. So if your foundation is in this religious system, he says, be careful because that can be shaken, that can be destroyed. But what you have in Christ, if you forsake it, you're forsaking the only thing that will not be and cannot be removed. So we sang Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak made strong, and the Savior's love. And so God is shaking things and he will. And I think we need to be careful we need to take inventory. What am I building my life around? What is the things that are musts for me? Are they things that can be taken? So what about you? What's your foundation? One more reference and then we'll close. Matthew chapter 7. I remembered this as I was studying because Lucy and I were reading this one night. And so once in a while I ask her, what's a foolish person do? And she says, builds his house on the sand. What's a wise person do? Builds his house on rocks. I said, who is the rock? Jesus! You know, because she's very Sunday school. She gets it. She uses all the right words. But this is something that I think that for us is so simple that it's almost too simple for us. So we need to constantly go back. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. says, therefore... Whoever hears these sayings of mine, of course, he's encapsulating all of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Whoever hears these sayings of mine 
and writes them down in their journal, right? No. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But, in contrast, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. Both people received the same tribulations and trials. Each one of us will experience many similar things, the believer and the unbeliever. And what he says is the results are different based on what you've built your life on. He says, all these things happened to this person and the house fell and great was its fall. So verse 28, chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, this kingdom that we're banking our lives on, and I hope you're banking your life on this eternal kingdom, it's going to happen. It's coming. This kingdom exists and will exist forever. You ever watch Sandlot? Forever. And it's real. It's more real than what you and I experience right now. It's hard for us to fathom that, isn't it? I can see, taste, touch, experience all that this life has to offer. And yet I can't see beyond the vanishing point. The vanishing point is like when you're looking down a flat stretch and all of a sudden your eyes can't see anymore. Our our eternity is beyond the vanishing point and yet we are promised that we receive this kingdom which cannot be shaken. He says, therefore, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Godly fear. To fear the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs says. He says, therefore, let us, since we have received this kingdom that will not, cannot, it's impossible to be shaken. He says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The presence of God without Jesus is a consuming fire. And so I would submit to you that those saved by grace also have to live by grace. We needed grace for salvation. Grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But the problem is, is that many of us try to continue in this life without grace empowering us now. We need grace to continue on. And so, Father, um, we thank you for this warning. We thank you for the words of this, uh, whoever wrote Hebrews. We could thumb wrestle over that. But he was trying to warn these Hebrew Christians not to turn back. So, Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to be faithful, to trust you through it all, to grow and be strengthened and be gaining endurance. We need it. This world is corrosive and it's erosive to faith. And yet, Father, you've called us to continue. And so, Father, please give us faith to continue by grace. 
Give us the grace to do the daily. I think that's sometimes harder than the hard stuff. To just keep showing up, to keep trusting you, to keep letting you empower us, even if you don't change the circumstances that, that grind at us and cause us to despair. Lord, help us to trust you anyway. Thank you for this word to the Hebrew Christians. Thank you for this word to us that we can still gain wisdom from it. Help us to build our houses upon the rock of Christ, to be wise and not foolish. Help us to let go of the things that can be shaken so that we can keep holding on to the things that cannot be shaken. And Lord, we trust you that you're really the one holding on to us. In Jesus' name, amen.